0: to the land vaguely realizing westward, but still unstoried, artless, unenhanced, such as she was, such as she would become, has become, and I've, and for this occasion, let me change that to what she will become. And this poem, Uh, What I was leading up to was the dedication of the poem to the president-elect. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That moment of democracy inspiration was Robert Frost, the first poet to ever speak at the inauguration of a president, reciting the gift outright from memory at JFK's inauguration when the glare of the sun prevented him from reading the poem, Dedication, which he'd written specially for the occasion. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, September 21st. Moving from 1961 to today, let's talk about the latest developments on the For the People Act, the latest developments on abortion and immigration rights, and Republican efforts to continue state-level investigations of the 2020 election results. So first, last Tuesday, Senate Democrats announced their new compromise version of the For the People Act, which they're calling the Freedom to Vote Act. It's largely aligned with the For the People Act, and in the last few days, voting rights advocates across the board have analyzed this new bill and by and large noted that it's surprisingly good. While compromises often take out major pieces, and there were a lot of fears that we'd get a very watered-down bill in this compromise, The new bill retains minimum requirements for how states run federal elections and would consequently roll back many of the Republicans' latest disenfranchisement schemes, especially around vote by mail, preventing frivolous challenges to voter qualifications, and placing pretty reasonable restrictions on poll watching to reduce intimidation. It expands voter registration, ensures a minimum length of time for early voting, and creates a nationwide rate to vote by mail. Particularly significant and timely, given that the race to draw maps has really begun in earnest this month, it also imposes new standards prohibiting partisan gerrymandering and explicitly ensures that maps for the next election must pass these standards. More technical but important, democracy attorneys and civil rights litigators have also been talking about one small but major improvement over the For the People Act in this new bill. It's judicial review provisions. The Freedom to Vote Act creates and guarantees a specific right to vote in federal elections, prohibits laws that make it harder to vote, applies heightened scrutiny to any bills that restrict the right to vote, and allows almost all voting rights cases to be filed in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, which has the promise of creating, as Mark Elias from the Democracy docket notes, a national uniform pro-democracy jurisprudence. So, something that will have a big impact long-term on protecting and litigating voting rights. While this is all good news, I will just keep mentioning, the big question remains is can this bill get passed? Many democracy advocates are arguing that Manchin would not have expended so much time and so much political capital on, on crafting this compromise if he didn't intend for it to get passed. He's said now that he aims to find Republican co-sponsors, but zero Republicans have stepped up and McConnell instantly shot down the new bill when it was announced. So, bottom line, we're back to looking for an exemption for democracy rules to the filibuster or a fundamental redesign of the filibuster that would slow but not block majority votes. Ideas like reducing the filibuster to 55 instead of 60 have been floated, but honestly, they're non-starters. In the current moment, we're as likely to find 10 as we are to find 5 Republicans in the Senate to protect voting rights. There's also a slim chance that a majority plus 1 adjustment, which has also been talked about, could bring in Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, but personally, I'm hoping that's not the direction chosen. It makes the pressure cooker even more intense and chances to pass this or other bills even more tenuous. But as I've said before, anything around filibuster reform is likely to be negotiated behind closed doors and pushed through at the last minute to make an advance. So we all just have to keep our eyes open and keep watching this to see if it will move forward. Another major development in the Senate happened yesterday when Elizabeth McDonough, the Senate parliamentarian, ruled that under current Senate rules, the proposal to provide a path to citizenship for an estimated 8 million immigrants is not possible through budget reconciliation as part of the $3.5 trillion budget package. While immigration activists are outraged, and I'm personally really disappointed, I would note that she's simply doing her job to apply the current rules to the situation. As she notes... Provisions are not allowed in such bills if their budget effect is merely incidental to their overall policy impact. However, it's important to note her guidance is not binding. Senate Democrats can choose to ignore her guidance or change the rules themselves to allow these items to pass. But that would essentially be a reform to the filibuster by another name, and Manchin and Senema have both opposed it, so I'm doubtful we'll see progress on that front. Both parties have stretched the use of the special budget productions that bypassed the filibuster over the years, but this latest ruling keeps these protections relatively intact, for better or worse, as strong as they are. So moving from the U.S. Senate down to the states, sham reviews of the 2020 elections, reminiscent of the Cyber Ninja investigation in Arizona that's now four months overdue and producing a report which everyone expects will fail to find any significant fraud except if they engage in distortions. Those sham reviews are now moving forward elsewhere. In Florida, Republicans indicated their intent to begin a process to review 2020 results in counties with populations over 250,000 people. This is troubling both because of the continuation of the big lie, but also, as I've been talking about before, another example of trying to use a population basis to justify targeted voter suppression. It's an end run around prohibited race or partisan-based restrictions. Something to keep an eye out for as the kind of continued attempts to rig who gets to vote and how we treat people in voting. And in Pennsylvania, subpoenas by the Senate Intergovernmental Operations Committee are going out to several large counties to investigate their counts as well, without any evidence for why this needs to happen. For those wondering why this energy is continuing, why are even establishment Republicans still continuing these investigations, look no farther than Trump's endorsements. State leaders are worried that if they don't advance these efforts, Trump will endorse outsiders who do, as he did just this week in Michigan. He endorsed Kalamazoo attorney Matthew DePerno on Thursday. Matthew DiPerno led the lawsuit claiming election fraud in the small and already heavily Republican Antrim County in Michigan. His lawsuit was dismissed in May because an election audit had already been performed there. And in June, DePerno was blasted by Republican-led state Senate committee that reviewed the 2020 election for potential fraud and called DePerno's claims demonstrably false and based on misleading information and illogical conclusions. Now, establishment Republicans in Michigan are worried their candidate for attorney general won't even enter the race, and this could end up with a far-right and poorly supported candidate to go up against the generally popular Democratic Air Attorney General Dana Nessel next year and lead a Republican to lose. So the ongoing dynamic of Trump's power and Trump's focus on 2020 election fraud, despite no evidence, is continuing to power this kind of shift and even questions around who will be up as candidates locally. And speaking of elections, in Virginia, early voting began last Friday in the most significant off-cycle elections before the midterms. State law allows for early voting to occur 45 days before Election Day in Virginia, and for the first time ever, allows municipalities to offer early voting on Sundays, after Democrats passed a wide-ranging Virginia Voting Rights Act after they regained control of the Assembly. While polls are showing closer than expected margins right now, all eyes will be on the election results in November as they were on the California recall last week. If Democrats from the governorship to the Assembly blow out Republicans, as Newsom did in the California recall, it'll be a good sign that polls are understating resistance to Trumpist Republican candidates. But if they're close, or worse if Democrats lose, expect panicked calls for major investment. But as I mentioned earlier, the elections in places like Virginia and California also need to be taken with a grain of salt. They don't take place in the context of massive new voting rights restrictions like those passed in Georgia and Texas. In fact, California and Virginia have both strengthened the right to vote and made it easier to vote. So even if Democrats do well, we can still see negative trends next year because of disenfranchisement. The Freedom to Vote Act does not pass federally. Lastly, when we look kind of forward, I want to just lift up the fact the U.S. Supreme Court will hear challenges to Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban on December 1st. And yesterday, two people who don't live in Texas and don't support the Texas abortion law sued a doctor there for performing an abortion after he announced that he had performed an abortion on a woman in her first trimester, but after the six-week ban to deliberately provoke a test case. Remember, the new law in Texas allows private citizens to sue anyone they believed helped a woman get an abortion and awards them at least $10,000 for a successful lawsuit. The Supreme Court let this law go into effect, saying there'd yet to be harm done. But now these cases will accelerate the debate on the constitutionality of the law, especially with the new federal suit from the Department of Justice coming down the pike, and keep these debates on the front burner for elections in the months to come. Thanks for joining me to hear a quick review of the key issues this week. I'm Jason Franklin. It's Tuesday, September 21st. And thanks for listening to 10 Minutes on Democracy.